Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Be curious, not judgmental. Uh, We don't know where that memorable phrase originated. Uh, Some have attributed it wrongly to Walt Whitman. Uh, But I know that line is a line from the TV show Ted Lasso. In that moment, the villain of the show has humiliated Ted. Ted's boss in front of a room full of lots of people. But in his arrogant dismissal of Ted, he had underestimated him. In his his judgmental spirit, his failure of curiosity, Ted sets a trap for him. And right in his moment of triumph, Ted speaks the words, Be curious, not judgmental. These are words that I believe should define followers of Jesus. They should define a church. A community gathered around the gospel, the teachings of Jesus, the kingdom of God. Be curious, not judgmental. This morning I want to explain why that, why that is. That we're taking a bit of a turn in the series on sin this morning uh, from the last several weeks where we've been meditating on sin as an individual reality. Sin unveils things wrong within me, my self-centeredness. My self-deception, my lack of self-control, things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. But the next two weeks, we're going to meditate on the question, what happens when a bunch of self-centered, self-deceived, people lacking in self-control get together and form a community? What happens then? I mean, that's what we're doing this morning. We are a church. A community of sinners gathered together, which means we're full of self-centered, self-righteous, self-deceived, lack of self-controlled people. So if that's true, what does that mean when we gather together? And so this morning I want to I meditate on a few things about that, around this curiosity and judgmentalism. So three points this morning. Why judgmental people destroy community. Why curious people create community and how to become curious people. So first, why judgmental people uh, destroy community? What is it to be judgmental? And this is important because uh, Jesus makes clear his disciples are not to be judgmental. He says this, Luke 6.37, Do not judge. And you will not be judged. Do not condemn. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Now we'll actually have a full sermon on this text in September, I believe. So come back then. Uh, but for this morning, the high-level point Jesus is making there is: do not be judgmental. This is important to Jesus. Do not be judgmental. However. One of the most common words non-Christians use 
to describe Christians is judgmental. Uh, in their book, Unchristian, the Barna Group, in their research, found that 87% of non-Christians describe Christians as judgmental. 87% of people we hope one day would find the liberating truth of Jesus say that the church is not a, commu- a curious community, but a judgmental one. And maybe you hear that and think, not fair. And there is some truth to that. We hold beliefs as Christians that many in the world will find judgmental. But before you go there, uh, I just turned 40. I've been a pastor almost 20 years, and I've been in the church in my entire life. And while I have met some incredible Christians along the way, my own 40-year experience would say we have a judgmental problem in the church. I believe it's why we just lived through the first pandemic in history where the church did not grow but actually shrank. Because judgmental people are not fun to be around. They destroy community. So what does it mean to be judgmental? Now we can take that question in a lot of directions. Uh, But I want to go where we've gone most of, of our weeks in this series, Genesis 3, and center in on one response that Adam gives to God to explain his own sin. The after God asks him, have you eaten from the tree I've, not, I've commanded you not to eat from? Adam responds by saying this in Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now there's a lot of judgmentalism going on in that verse. Uh, but I'm going to limit myself to two reflections. The first is to be judgmental is to practice avoidance. The, one of the reasons why we've done this series is not to make you feel bad about yourself, but hopefully to show you the deep complexity of sin. That My hope is we could open up space to explore with compassion our sinfulness, our brokenness. What's wrong with us? The last thing I wanted to do uh, in this series was make us judgmental towards ourselves. But now is, is once you've had some curiosity and some compassion towards your own sin, you'll take the step to feel the same way about other people and their sin. To explore the brokenness of other people with curiosity and compassion. Whether they are your siblings that you live with at home. It's your spouse. It's the people you work with. The person in your Bible study or small group. That it would pervade this community. That we'd be known for curiosity and compassion towards the sins of other people. But human beings struggle to do this. We are not good at this. And that was verified in a 1967 study which described human tendency, uh, this human tendency which they named as fundamental attribution error. What is fundamental attribution error? I'm glad you asked. It's this. It's the tendency people have to overemphasize personal characteristics and ignore situational factors in judging others' behavior. 
Because of the fundamental attribution error, we tend to believe that others do bad things because they are bad people. So when it comes to my own sin, I recognize there's situational factors at play. So I'm curious and compassion towards myself. When someone else does something wrong, I just assume the worst and label them a bad person. So for example, I get really annoyed when people are late to a meeting. And I, in my worst moments, make immediate conclusions about why they were late. They're disorganized. They're irresponsible, not dependable. But believe it or not, I, on occasion, have been late to things. But in those cases, there were always completely reasonable factors. Literally a few weeks ago, I was on my way to a meeting. My engine overheated on uh, Indiana 49, on Stereo 49. And I look, and my clamp is off my engine, and it's just, it's just overheating. So I was late to a meeting. Completely reasonable understanding. So let's apply this to sin. When it comes to our struggles with sin, we have reasons. We have factors. We have Stories in our history that we know give explanation to why we do some of the things we wish we would not do. So we show compassion and curiosity towards our sin. And I think we should. It's been the heart of this series. is not to lay shame and guilt on us for our sin, but to say, look with compassion and curiosity because that opens you up for grace. But too often then, we're not compassionate towards others in their struggles and that destroys community no curiosity towards the sins of others destroys community and i wonder how many people that's one of their primary experiences of christianity christians walking around telling what's wrong with the world and other people in harshest terms we can imagine Totally avoiding the reality of our own sinfulness, just like Adam. That woman you put, me, you put here with me, she made me eat it. We walk around with the same spirits, completely avoiding the confrontation of our own sin. And it harms others. It harms our world. It harms us when we do it. It's what Adam is doing in Genesis 3, completely avoiding his own responsibility And with freedom passes judgment on his wife and his God when it's his fault. To be judgmental is to practice avoidance of what's wrong in us while in freedom passing judgment on others. But the second element of what Adam's doing is, is he's accusing. To be judgmental is to accuse The accusation, what Adam is doing here, it's a word of condemnation. There's no hope in his words. No plea for mercy and no expectation of kindness. And so for me, there's a distinction between accusation and confrontation. That I'm not suggesting we never point out the sin we find in another person. But we should never point out what is broken in someone else in the spirit of accusation. Because that's literally what Satan is called the accuser, and I find when I take up his work, it's not a good vision of life. But accusation ruins community. 
Because what happens in accusation is, is, first, we have no interest in the truth. We reach conclusions. We ask no questions. And we form a firm opinion in our minds. I see this so often in the church. We hear something about someone else from someone else, and we immediately draw conclusions. That's accusation. Where what is sought is not the truth, but we, we enter into the role of prosecutor. We form the case in our minds, and we prosecute them before others, before God, and in our hearts, rather than seeking truth. That's what's so strikingly different about God's approach to Adam and Eve than what Adam and Eve are doing. Adam and Eve have all kinds of accusations flying around, but all God does is ask questions. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you that? Accusation has no time for questions. And yet that, all, that is all God has time for. If you read through Genesis 3, he's only asking questions. Accusation is, is no interest in the truth, but it's also giving up on another person. Rather than expecting in hopefulness that God will bring his redemption into their life. And I want to be clear. Again, I'm not saying we should never name sin or name the wrong within a person or within a community. I'm literally doing that right now. So I'm not saying you never do that. But there is a reason Satan is given the name the accuser. Because he doesn't want to just point out the wrong in another person. He wants to prosecute them. This one's mine. And God has no right to them. But in the church, if we believe the gospel, if we believe in our own redemption, there should be a hopefulness pervading us. Even as we name what we might see as wrong in other people. And I'm not saying I always do this. I don't. But I want to. And I want to because I don't want people to view the church as a place of judgmental people. And I fear that's what a lot of my non-Christians view the church, non-Christian friends and families view the church as. And to summarize, there's a, one of my favorite songs, a song called River by Leon Bridges. <clears throat> Clearly grew up in the church would seem to me he's not there currently. But in the song River, he sings, longing for redemption, but he stands outside the church, skeptical that the wrongs he has done could be forgiven. And so he sings, Oh, I want to come near and give you every part of me, but there's blood on my hands, and my lips are unclean. He wants to go to the river to be washed clean, but he's unsure. Can I? To be judgmental destroys community and destroys the hope of the gospel in people's lives. But curious people create community. So this is going to be a short point. Um, but, but second, why curious people create community? And I've already, I've already mentioned this, but if you have a Bible, you should go to Genesis 3. So this meditating on this text for this series um, has really struck me fresh. God begins his interaction around the first sin only asking questions. Now he will make pronouncements. I'm not, I, I've read the rest of the Bible. I know that. 
But in, the, in that moment, as he confronts sinners in their first sin, it's only questions. Where are you? Who told you that? Have you done what I asked you not to do? What have you done? Questions. Uh, to ask questions is to practice curiosity. And to be clear, God already knows the information. Whereas when we ask questions, we actually don't know the information, which means when we pass judgment on people, we always do so with not enough information. God has all the information, but still asks questions. Because questions invite community. Invite the possibility of community. To ask questions invites community. To hurl accusation is to destroy community. That's so good, I'm going to say that a second time. To ask questions invites community, but to hurl accusations destroys it. And as I said, even, even God will stop asking questions, and he makes pronouncements. But the first pronouncement he makes is a curse on the serpent, not on Adam and Eve. He actually doesn't curse Adam and Eve. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. What happens when we persistently refuse God's invitations and questions to return into community with him? There does come a point when God stops asking questions. I recognize that. But that's never God's first step. And you see that in the life of Jesus as well. Going around, asking questions. Read through the Gospels. Jesus is frustrating. Every time you ask him a question, he asks you a question. Because he wants to know you. He's curious. As John said, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And salvation and gospel and grace enters into the world not through accusation, but through question, through curiosity. Curious people create community. And what God is doing in asking questions is inviting Adam and Eve back into community with himself. So, how then do we become a curious community? Well, first, we are a curious community when we enthusiastically embrace the leveling doctrine of sin. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., when he was trying to explain why racism was so persistent in American society, had this to say. I'm convinced that men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they don't uh, commune with each other. And they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. The problem, King says, is we are, are separated from each other. But here's the beauty of sin. Sin unites us. We are all equals. We are all deeply flawed. None of us is better than anyone else. I cannot separate myself out from others as superior to them, no matter their politics or vision of life. And Jesus explicitly warned us against that spirit. He tells a parable about one man, a Pharisee, who goes to the temple and he prays this prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Now before we judge this guy, if I was to ask people to raise their hands in the room, and I'm not going to ask that, so don't raise your hand. Uh, how many of us fast twice a week and give 10% away of everything that we, we get? 
This is a good, this is a moral man. That's what I'm saying. He's deeply religious. And he's contrasting himself with a tax collector, a man who rips off the poor, lives in luxury, no doubt never fast, probably through his theft is feasting sumptuously. So the Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like that guy. So let's read what Jesus has to say about that guy. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is impossible to exaggerate how shocking this would have been to the people who heard Jesus say this. The tax collector is justified, is in communion with God, and the Pharisee is not. And why is the Pharisee not? Because he, he thinks himself superior to other people. Because if you, have, if you think yourself superior to anyone, you have not embraced sin. Because it levels all of us. If you really understand who you are, you will never look at another person and say, thank God I'm not them. Or thank God I'm better than them. Sin makes us all equal before the Father. That's why we're doing this series. Because I believe a church that takes sin seriously actually will not become judgmental. It's churches that don't take sin seriously that become judgmental. To take sin seriously is to become a real community. Where we practice real community together. Because I would never and can never look with judgment or disdain on any other person, but only with hopefulness. Because the same God who's breaking redemption into my life can break redemption into yours. And if I believe that, then I cannot accuse. I will only ask questions, and I will hold out hopefulness for wherever God might lead you or take you. So that's first. Sin levels us. And if right now you have in your mind people you are better than, you need to go back to step one and embrace the doctrine of sin. A second, we'll become a curious community when we accept our limited frame. Uh, in, our, in her memoir, My Dead Parents, this is a Ukrainian name, so I'm going to do my best. But her name is Anya Yurchurchin. Uh, I'm going to call her Anya from now on. Uh, she lists out all the way her parents had brought great harm into her life. And she writes... Um, honestly, she disdained them, uh, blamed them for her anxiety, her low self-esteem. Her father was a cold, distant man, absent for much of her life. And he died tragically in a car accident when he, she was 16 years old. And she writes that when he died, it was honestly a, a relief to her. Her mother was aloof and distant, an alcoholic, and died when Anya was 32. And again, Anya said, when she died, I just felt relief. But as she was processing her mother's death, she came across a box, a, a box of love letters that her father and mother had written to one another. And her response was shock. Their vulnerability, their love for one another. Who are these people? She asked. And she discovered her mother's childhood had been heartbreaking, full of abuse and abandonment. 
Her father was a hometown hero in his Ukrainian village. And he had left to go rebuild a town destroyed by Russia in communism. His absenteeism to Anya was actually a devotion to his family in his hometown. She discovered that before she was born, she had a brother who died of pneumonia in infancy. And it had great pain into her father and mother's life. She takes all of this in and she writes, I was the product of complicated people who'd done the best they could. Today I am proud to be their daughter, a person who's replaced pity with compassion. That compassion opened the door to the emotional prison where I'd long kept my parents, and in turn it freed me. To be judgmental is to live in prison. And we are all complicated with complicated stories. And the people you are in conflict with right now have many things you don't know about them. I want to be clear, that doesn't excuse sin. Or make it okay for people to do whatever they want to do. It just means that I will never be equipped to play the judge or the jury of another person. And it's why David Zoll writes in Low Anthropology, Acceptance of one's limited frame of reference breeds hope rather than shame. You may have 95% of the facts about a certain conflict in your life, but you do not have them all. Which means that before you conclude once and for all that a situation is beyond repair, consider the possibility, however remote, that what's missing could mitigate things. Ask that one last question. I want to be a community that asks that one last question. But too often, I've seen people experience the church as a place that doesn't ask any questions. We speak judgment with ease. We carry carry harshness like a badge of honor. Never asking the questions. And yet I'm grateful because the gospel is that God will always ask that one last question. And that leads me where I want to want to end our time this morning. We are a curious community when we love others the way he has loved us. So in our article, Is Marriage Obsolete? Uh, Heather Haverlasky reflects on why marriage is struggling. Divorce rates very high in our, our culture today. And one reason she gives is that we now view romance or relationships in a different way. Uh, the other person completes me, makes me feel good, fills me with joy. So the other person gives me something, that's why I stay in this marriage. But she points out, that's not actually where the power of marriage is. And she writes, uh, Marriage can't simply be about living your best lives in sync. Because some of the peak moments of a marriage are when you share in your anxieties, your fears, your longings, even your horrors. That's why sickness and death are key to marriage vows. Because there is nothing more divine than being able to say out loud, today I am really, truly at my worst. Knowing that it won't make your spouse run for the hills. My husband, my husband has even my worst before. We both know that our worst is likely to get worse from here. And somehow that feels like grace. Today I am really, truly at my worst. 
to be able to say that to another person and to have them stay committed to you in love is truly grace. And that's what makes a good marriage. Sure, there are high points of marriage. A few weeks ago when um, I turned 40, my wife took me to a steak place and I ate a steak. It was way too much money. Um, and it was a lovely moment. But that, what makes marriage is, great, is not those high moments. It's when I'm at my worst, I'm still loved. And I believe that's what the church is supposed to be. Yet, how often do Christians run for the hills when something difficult arises in church? We can't live through disagreements of carpet color or music style. And yet, we communicate to the world, God will love you no matter what you do in your life. And the world has said, that's great, you're judgmental. And yet, in the truth of the gospel is a God who says, I know you're at your worst, and I still love you. And now go form a community that actually makes that believable. Because as much as I can say to you, God will love you even when you are at your worst, the only way that ever begins to take root in your heart and your life is if you've experienced that through another Christian who's spoken the words of Jesus over you, you are forgiven, it is finished. And I'm here with you to the end. That we always go looking for that next relationship, the next church, that will make us feel good, that will give us something uh, that we want to experience. And that is something, but that's not grace. The gospel is that Jesus loves me at my worst, and I believe that theologically. It's in the Bible, so I believe it. But we have to be a community that actually embodies that truth in the way we speak into others' lives. That actually makes it true for us. That it's okay for you to be at your worst because we're going to love you anyway. We're not running for the hills, and we're not going to run to the next community. And I know all of this is incredibly difficult to do in practice. I'm not naive about that. So how do we do that? How do we live a life that enables us to embrace the leveling doctrine of sin? That gives us the humility of our limited frame. That enables us to love others the way that he has loved us. And my answer, and why we shifted our worship services when I got here... My answer to that question will always be the table. It's communion. Because what happens at the table of Jesus? We're all equals, right? Hands open to receive the grace of Jesus. When you were at his worst, when you were at your worst, his body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you. No one sits at the head of this table. We are equals. We accept our limited limitations. I could not save myself. And if I could not save myself, then you could not save yourself. And so maybe you need the same compassion from me that I need from Jesus. We let him love us the way he asks us to love others. We are reminded he suffered for us. He forgave us. He loved us when we were not lovable. And if I'm receiving all of this from the Son of God... It's not just that I should probably love you the same way that he loves me. Why wouldn't I want to? Isn't the table a better life than a life of judgmental hypocrisy? Of casting accusation on every person around us? Isn't it better to open up the table and to give your life away in sacrificial love? This is the good life. This is the true life. The love of Christ. Because at his table, one thing and one thing only happens. Judgmental people die... And people of grace are raised to life. 
Let me pray for us. Father, in a moment, we're going to get to your table. And I know in my own heart there's some, some judgmentalism that needs to die. So as I take the bread and drink the juice, would, would it die? And would you raise in my heart a man of grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.